I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. Well, today I have a real thrill and privilege. I'm speaking to Mary Pfeiffer, who's written a new book, Women Rowing North, Navigating Life's Currents and Flourishing as We Age. I could not possibly recommend a book more highly. It's certainly my favorite book of the year. It is so thoughtful, such deep insights, and at times painful, at times wonderfully hilarious, but always thoughtful and profound. You may remember Mary Pfeiffer because 25 years ago, she wrote an equally transformative and important book called Reviving Ophelia, which talked about the stresses and anxieties that adolescent girls face. Mary Pfeiffer is an American clinical psychologist and an author, of course, and she was a Rockefeller Scholar-in-Residence in Bellagio, and she received two American Psychological Association presidential citations. And she returned the one she received in 2006 as a protest against the APA's acknowledgement that some of its members participate in controversial interrogation techniques at Guantanamo Bay and at U.S. black sites, something for which many of us deeply admire her. It's just an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Mary. Welcome to Grandmothers on the Move. Thank you. You've done beautiful work, and I'm happy and honored to be on. Well, thank you. And your book is now going to be my guidepost probably the next 40 or 50 years if I have that long. Thank you so much. There were so many things in Women Rowing North that deeply touching to me, but also fascinating and challenging. And I loved the analogy of rowing navigating, finding the way through treacherous currents, travel companions on the journey, co-captains, how you expanded that metaphor. And even at one point, very poignant moment in the book where you talk about putting down the paddles to look around. And I wonder, having read about you, I didn't get the impression that you were a rower or a sailor. (laughs) No, I'm not. No. And I wondered, how did that metaphor come to you? It's so powerful throughout the book. Well, thank you for asking that. And I live in Nebraska, which is about as landlocked as we can be from an ocean. (laughs) But nobody likes water more than somebody in the middle of Nebraska. And we do have a lot of rivers and I live on water and I love water. I'm a swimmer. I love water. Part of the reason I chose that water metaphor is this is a bookend book to Reviving Ophelia, my book about teenage girls, which of course refers to Ophelia from Hamlet, drowning weighed down by our beautiful gowns in water Mm -hmm. in the play. So I wanted a water image for that. I like water as a metaphor, especially for women. So I picked that metaphor. And then rowing, I don't row or canoe or any of those sports that use paddles, but I picked that because of the arduous nature of the verb. And I really wanted to make it clear that nothing I'm saying in this book is easy. It's all actually pretty hard work. 
to stay positive and to stay focused and to set one's intention about how to go about a day with a cheerful, loving presence and gratitude all day. So that's why I chose the verb rowing. And north, of course, is a wonderful metaphor for aging, whether it's thinking about winter or thinking about going north to the North Pole. For me, all of that has always conveyed winter and ice and aging and death. Yeah, it's a powerful metaphor in every way. Of course, reviving Ophelia felt revolutionary, and I think it was at the time, and so does Women Rowing North. But Women Rowing North also felt like a kind of a beacon to me. You talk about flourishing as we age. And as I was reading it, it it was so forward-looking at the same time that it reflects on the stories of other women. And there are things that you say throughout the book about older women and grandmothers that we can grow in moral imagination and we can be profiles in courage. And I thought there was this extraordinary and beautiful continuity between the young adolescent woman, who I think at one point you say they have to find their own North Star, and yet a kind of deepening and developing of that moral compass. And and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, absolutely. You know, the whole concept of moral development is really interesting because the way Kohlberg, the great original thinker about Mm -hmm. moral development and psychology, talked about it was in terms of life stages, that infants start out very, you know, self-centered and narcissistic and unaware of the needs of others, and that gradually over life we become more empathic and so on. And I think that's true. I think that if we're lucky, if we're growing if we're green on top, as we age, we do expand our circle of caring. We do expand our ability to take the point of view of another person. And and really, I would argue the ideal growth pattern is by the time we die, we're including in our circle of caring every living being, not just people, but animals and plants. And in a sense, the whole biosphere and our love for the whole organism that is we, is us at this point. The thing I think Kohlberg really misses with that is how much individual variation there are. And I've known children who were filled with moral imagination at age two. And then I've also known 80-year-old people who had absolutely no moral imagination at all. So a lot of things go into the development of empathy and understanding of point of view and moral imagination. I remember with my grandson, Aiden, when he was about four years old, he lives in a little town called Central City. We'd been out watching the meteor shower and we came atop a hill that overlooked his little town. And he said something like, Nana, isn't Central City a beautiful city? The lights were twinkling below. And I said, you do live in a pretty little town, Aiden. And he was real quiet for a minute. And then he said, Central City is big to me, but it's small to the rest of the world. (laughs) And that's the moment I think he understood point of view. And and I don't think he ever lost it. I think that's the moment it happened for him. And then another story for grandchild, if you will permit that, I think you will on this show. For grandmothers, (laughs) there's a book and a song called Hey Little Ant. And the gist of the book is a boy's about to step on the ant. But the ant starts talking to him and singing to him and saying, you know, I have a life just like you. I have a wife and a family, too. And then the last line of this song is about the boy at the moment when he decides whether to squish the ant or not. It basically gives the child a choice. Uh, If you were the boy, would you squish that ant or let it go free? And so I read the story. We listened to the song. And I had three little grands at that time. I had Kate 
who was seven, Aiden, who was in five, and Claire, who was three. And I said, now, what would you children do if it was you? And Aiden and Kate both said, Nana, we won't ever squish an ant on purpose again. And Claire said, well, Nana, all I can promise is I won't squish a talking ant. <laughs> now, she was saying something very profound, which is her moral imagination was not yet to the point she could see the humanity or the beauty and the point of view of an ant. But she would not squish a talking ant. She had gotten that far. So it's very interesting to watch this moral imagination grow in children. And what I'm seeing in women my age, I'll stick with women right now, is that many of us have just become kinder, more emotionally generous. You know, when, when I was younger, my women friends and I would be a little bit critical of other people. And we could sit around and diss our husbands and talk a little bit critically of people in our lives. And that kind of talk is almost gone now. When we're together, we tend to be expressing love for each other, talking about our families with love, being concerned for the well-being of our community. So there really is at this life stage, a profound opportunity for a growth spurt in kindness, empathy, and moral imagination. And that makes us happier. I believe the bigger our empathy is, the happier we can be. Mm -hmm. It's also the sadder we can be because we have more sense for the suffering of people all over the world. But we have the joy of being deeply connected to all of life. But another great thing about increasing our moral imaginations is we are of great use to the world because the world at this point will only be saved by people who can empathize and understand the point of view of all living beings. That's something that I have learned to look to older women and grandmothers for. And one of the things that really struck me in the book was how much you talked about changing the way you think. You said that you were hoping it wouldn't be a how-to book, but a how-to-think book. And I felt it deeply was that. I was also struck by the way that you talked about happiness, the way that you were challenging the reader to think about the choices that can be made and what happiness means at this point. Absolutely. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to step back even further from that yeah. point and then move into it. Because I was thinking this morning when I listened to the radio, there was a question on National Public Radio. Now that ISIS has been conquered or whatever, what more can our country do to fight terrorism? And they were referring to Al-Qaeda and ISIS and that kind of terrorism. And I was thinking, well, why was that the question? Why wasn't the question, what can we do to fight white nationalism all over the world? Mm -hmm. And the ugly rise of fascism in its various forms. But the way we frame a cultural issue has tremendous effect on the way members of a culture think. And one of the things that struck me very early on when I was looking into writing this book about older women is the way old age is framed in America is almost exclusively in terms of loss and diminishment. In other words, we're not as sexy, we're not as attractive, we're not as likely to be parenting and useful in the workforce, and therefore we're perceived as diminished in value. Now what happens is if we internalize the culture's message about who we are as we age, we're not likely to be very happy because the message is we're diminished human beings. We're a smaller, sadder version of our former selves. And on the contrary, my experience has been absolutely the opposite, that older women are the most engaged, useful, productive, happy people in North American culture. And we actually have the research to show this. So what I really wanted to look into was how it is 
that so many older women cultivate resilient responses to the challenges we face. And one of the things I, I realized right away is the women who are resilient are not defining themselves by external validation. If we look to the culture to tell us how wonderful and great we are, we're, we're not going to be happy. And for that matter, if we wait for people in our communities to tell us how wonderful and great we are, we're unlikely to be extremely happy. If we look inside ourselves, our true self, our true moral compass, and we're living in accord with our values, we can be happy no matter what's happening outside. And we can take on the task of letting other people know how wonderful and amazing they are and inspiring them to be the people they can become. So that shift from external to internal is a really important part of being happy. Another thing is happiness, as I write about it, is a skill and a choice. Mm -hmm. And the choice is attitude. We can make up our minds that we want to be happy and we can do the work we need to to be happier. I don't say any of us are happy all the time. For one thing, this is a very rough life stage. At some point during this life stage, we all say goodbye to everyone we love. And in fact, what I say is this life stage is catalytic for growth because of this constant back and forth between the joys we feel with grandchildren, with more time to savor our lives in many cases, with our deep sense of connection to our true selves and to the rest of life, alternating with the pain of saying goodbye, which is something we all experience. It's catalytic for growth. And what we need to be happier in this life stage is this sense that we have everything we need to be happy inside ourselves. I visited an older woman, a jazz pianist named Jane Jarvis in New York City. I interviewed her earlier for a book and been struck by what a hard life she'd had. She'd lost her parents at 11. She was a jazz prodigy and her parents had died in a car accident. And then she was an orphan in foster care and had a real rough time. But by then she was a very good musician and music kept her going. Music kept her sane and gave her avenue for beauty. Well, over the course of her lifetime, like most jazz musicians, she was poor and she had three husbands. And uh, the second husband, when we were talking about him, she laughed. She couldn't remember his name. But as an older lady, she lived alone. And I visited her in New York City when she was 96 and in a wheelchair. She had a very tiny little apartment and she had an aide come every day and bathe her and bring her some food and help her get up and play her piano for a while. So when I went to see her, she played a song for me. I helped her get out of bed and then helped her go back to bed. And I said, Jane, are you all right? Are you happy? And she looked at me with this big smile and said, Mary, I've got everything I need to be happy right between my ears. And she was referring to what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. that she had made up her mind to be happy and that she had over the course of 96 years developed the skills she needs to be happy. And so what I try to do in the book is write about attitudes and how we can set an intention. For example, I believe that we find what we look for. And if we move around our day looking for love, looking for kindness, looking for beauty, looking for opportunities to be merciful, looking for joy, we can find those things. They're always present. So part of it is setting our intention for the day. And then part of it is having a, a large repertoire of skills, which women, I'm 71, which women my age have had seven decades to develop that help us maintain that intention to be happy. So for example, skills and resources. One of the great skills is reasonable expectation, just knowing what we can expect of our lives. 
and my aunt Grace said it beautifully. She said, I get what I want, but I know what to want. (laughs) And another skill is gratitude. It's not a sweet kind of nice virtue. It's a survival skill. And I found that the women who have the toughest lives tend to have the deepest gratitude. And it's not because they're virtuous. It's because they need that gratitude to be able to carry on with these very rough lives. So I I tell a lot of stories in my book, Women Roaring North, about women in rough situations who manage to make a joke or use humor or be grateful or find something beautiful to pay attention to or absorb themselves in a meaningful project. All of those are ways to be happy. And there was something else you touched on that I hear a lot from the grandmothers that I have the privilege to work with and speak to, which is the whole area of authenticity. And I often hear it from grandmothers as a kind of liberation from Mm -hmm. the narcissism Mm -hmm. of youth and the busyness and the concern of life and work and motherhood. I think there's a beautiful way of putting it where you talk about crafting resplendent narratives and reframing Mm -hmm. the stories for ourselves about our lives and what we've experienced. Absolutely. Well, let me start with the concept of self-acceptance and authenticity. If we try as we age to simply live in the identity of our younger selves, we're going to fail. We're going to experience our older years as a failure because we obviously can't stay young. It's an impossibility. So rather than move in that direction, most of the women I know, and I think most women because of our happiness, move towards something much deeper and more beautiful, which is being authentic. This sense that I can listen to the voice inside me that says, yes, to aspects of being alive and in the universe and says no to other aspects of being alive. So that, for example, many women in North America my age were not raised to take care of ourselves. We were raised that our job was to be good girls and nurturers and always be present for other people. Mm -hmm. Well, at some point, we realize nobody educated us to take care of ourselves. And it's really okay for us to say no. It's really okay for us to say, I'm as busy as I want to be right now, or I'd rather not do that. And that's a tremendous skill to just be able to include ourselves in our circle of caring and include our own wants and needs in our decisions about what we do. The other thing is, I'll speak for myself, but I'm not very concerned anymore about what people think of me. I'm I'm concerned about the quality of my own life. And for example, one of the great joys for me at my age is I wear a lot of sweatpants and flannel shirts, and I don't worry much about how I look as I move about the world. I've never worried overly much about it, but I worry even less now. It's the same with This feeling that if people like me, fine, if they don't like me, fine, but I'm just going to relax and be who I am and let the chips fall where they may. So this mercy towards oneself, this self-acceptance that this is who I am at 71, I'm unlikely to have major personality changes is really wonderful experience. And I think that women tend to be real hard on themselves and full of self-criticism and self-doubt and chastising themselves because they haven't done more and been better and been more useful. And at least for me, I don't think I'll ever turn those tapes off totally. They're too deeply ingrained, but I'm more capable of turning that volume down on those tapes that tell me that and more capable of just stepping into the present moment and looking around 
And that's where all of our joy is. It's in the present moment. It's noticing the meadowlark singing outside the window or the delicious taste of a piece of pecan pie or how much fun it is to have a child crawl in our lap and want a story. That's where all the joy is. It's not inside chastising ourselves for what we haven't done. The other thing I just wanted to mention briefly is this business of telling ourselves new stories, crafting resplendent mm-hmm. narratives, because we can't change our past. Whatever we've done or not done, whatever's been done to us, it's over, it's gone. But we can change the stories we tell ourselves. And if we tell ourselves the same problem-saturated stories, we will make ourselves unhappy. If we look into our past for evidence of love, for the examples of times when people were kind to us and when we were joyous and when we had a really close moment with someone that meant something to us. We can actually change our emotional tone toward our own past. And I use my past a great deal to cheer myself up. For example, when I come off a book tour, when I've been out speaking a lot, I come home and I'm really frazzled. I really almost have a sense of I'm not myself. I just have really been focused on other people so much that I'm not very grounded or connected inside myself. And one of the things I'll do at that point is I'll make the vegetable soup my mom used to make me when I was a girl. It was my favorite thing she cooked. And as soon as I make that soup, which I can make just like she made it, and have a bowl of that vegetable soup, I feel more like myself. It takes me back to the three-year-old Mary who liked that vegetable soup. Another example of that kind of memory thing is I was very close to my grandmother, Margaret Agnes, and she was a, a ranch wife in eastern Colorado, and she loved me too. We were a pair. So when we have big family gatherings, my grandmother would always say, now, Mary, I want you to come help me do dishes. And she actually called me my Mary. I want my Mary to come help me do dishes. (laughs) And then we'd go to the kitchen and one of us would say, now, let's do these dishes really slowly so we can talk a long time. And we would visit. And she she would bake ginger snap cookies for me because that's what I like. And she knew I liked pork chops. So one time I came into her house with my family and I said, what's for dinner? And she said, pork chops. And I said, oh, I love those, grandmother. And she said, well, that's why we're having them. And I remember just being stunned by that, that someone would organize a whole meal around 15 people because I liked a particular dish. It was just a a beautiful, lovely experience. But anyway, when I have trouble going to sleep now, I think back to my grandmother's kitchen and I remember every detail of it, the red tile floor and the old stove and the kitchen cabinets and what was on the first shelf and the second shelf. So I'll lie in bed and I'll open those cabinets and I'll look at her plates and cups and water glasses. And then I'll look across the sink. And about the time I get to her cookie jar, I'll fall asleep. And so I really love the idea that we can look back to this shelter belt of family and find those people that were loving and good to us and hold on to their memories to keep us feeling warm and happy. One of the reasons that I started this podcast was because there was this unknown kind of alchemy of the grandmother-grandchild relationship that seems so precious and so powerful. And I knew I didn't understand it. And as I was reading your book, I was so grateful, Mary, because there were many things you touched on that made complete sense. 
offering the grandchild the gift of flow time and that the grandmothers can help grandchildren prepare for life. And there was so much that you talked about in that chapter about grandmotherhood and sharing storytelling and a rooting in history and continuity and who they are, the identity of these children being connected. I thank you for it because some of the mystery that I've been trying to solve is in the pages of this beautiful book. How did grandmotherhood change you? Oh, that's a great question. Of course, talking about being a grandmother is, I have to say, my favorite topic in the world. It's just a (laughs) wonderful topic. But, you know, I was extremely, extremely happy when my son's wife and my son told me they were going to expect a baby. I was extremely joyous and happy about that. I love children. I've always loved children. I was the oldest of six kids, and I ended up being the storyteller for all the children in my area out in the summer in the night, we'd lie in our front yard and look at the stars and I'd make up stories for children. I liked being a parent. That was the happiest part of my life until recently. And I always liked just the little activities that I could create and enjoy with children. I had enormous amount of fun, for example, on things like nature walks or hide and seek, or that's what I like in life or cooking together. So when I heard my daughter-in-law, Jamie, was pregnant, I was very, very happy. But I wasn't prepared for quite the experience I had when my first granddaughter, Kate, was born. And we were in the hospital. We weren't present at her birth. But we'd sat up all night in a waiting room with a TV on. I never watched TV, so that was a great sacrifice for me, waiting for her to have this baby. And finally, Kate is born. And I remember just being suffused with this golden light. And when I saw Kate, I remember just being in a transformed state. It was really something I wasn't familiar with. And I realized really at that moment how total and unconditional my love was for her. And of course, mothers feel that when their children are born, but then they very rapidly have to move into a totally different frame of mind with children because they have responsibilities. They have the responsibility to prepare the child to live in the world. And that means socializing the child and teaching them manners and teaching them to use a toilet and to eat food with a fork and so on and so on. (laughs) So they have these enormous tasks to do, plus in many cases, provide a living and so on. Grandmothers generally don't have to do that. But even if they do have to do it, they've had enough decades to be deeply and consistently aware of the miracle of life and of the importance of the connection between grandchildren and parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. I mean, by the time I die, I may have known seven generations of family. And to me, that's one of the most beautiful gifts of being older is this sense for deep time and how we fit in a long line of hominid ancestors, including our own particular grandparents and great-grandparents that we knew. So there's just this sense of being privileged to be part of a family line that I, I think is very important. But the other thing is, with our own children, we have ideas about how we want them to be. And oftentimes, they're based on ideas of what we were denied when we were as children. So that, for example, if we had parents who didn't buy us nice clothes, we may decide, well, I want these children to have beautiful clothes. If we had parents who fought, we may decide, well, I want our children to grow up in a conflict-free zone. So we have all these ideas. I think what's different with grandmothers is generally they are filled with love and acceptance and have very small agendas for children. They want these children to develop and grow 
into all they can be. And that means there's so much more openness and joy in just watching a child unfold without feeling a need to do much managing or interfering. You know, Margaret Mead said, grandchildren and grandparents love each other so much because they're united against a common enemy, the parents. And there is a sense in which that's true, that the parents have an agenda as a socializing agent. And the grandchildren and the grandparents have the agenda to love each other and have a good time together. And so they do share a similar agenda. And it's a really important and beautiful agenda. I want to come back to this idea of resilience, because one of the things also in the book that is extraordinarily poignant and sometimes painful, because you talk about hardships of life generally for women as they're aging and the grief of loss, and you speak very personally and intimately about some of the challenges that you've experienced and building of your own resilience. And I wanted to connect those two building resilience and building community. I like how you called it rituals of survival. And and I particularly loved that you talked about friendship as a verb. And I wonder if you can just illuminate us a bit and, and elucidate on that. I'd love to talk about that. And one great challenge you didn't mention for older mm-hmm. older women is often caregiving, yes. whether it's for, for grandchildren whose parents are dead or mm-hmm. drug addicted or unavailable in some way, and also for the people in their, their world that need care. That's a big job. And whether or not we're caregivers, whether or not we're grandparenting and parenting children at the same time, one of the real critical resources, I think, for Roy North with calmness and joy is having a large resource base of warm and loving relationships. And that's what old age tends to be about. Most people as they age derive their happiness from warm, loving relationships. It's no longer about things. It's no longer about travel. It's about being loved and loving other people. So I, I mentioned family. I Someone who has a great love for not all members of my family, but for the ones I love, I have great love for them. And those are the ones I hold dear and stay in real close touch with. But I also mentioned the beauty of long-term partnership and how wonderful it is to have shared a home and a life with someone across many years and how sweet those relationships that maybe earlier were not so sweet can become with time and with skill. The other thing, though, that's very important, and you alluded to this, is the power of women's friendships. And I'm really lucky. I've lived in the same town since 72. So I'm approaching 50-year relationships with women friends. And we've had babies together and we have an annual camp out. Some of my best friends, it's every year that's about 15 of us going camping on the Platte River. And I'm in a writer's group with women I've known for decades. But all of that means that when I need to talk to someone, when I want to be with somebody and have fun, when I want to take a long walk and process an issue or a problem in my life, there's someone I can call and share that with. And over the course of decades, these long-term friendships, we know each other so well that we can say very little and understand the core of the story. And even if if a woman is not lucky enough to have these long-term friendships, it's never too late to start building long-term friendships and go out and find people. But I found that a wonderful resource. And it is work because people get very busy. And so it's work to call and schedule the walks and to make the commitments to once a month coffee 
with a group of women. But it ends up being, in the end, so close to salvation. One of my friends, a writer in my writer's group, lost her husband around Christmas this year. And she asked me to be the officiant at her husband's service. And she asked the other women in the writer's group to be the other people involved. So one of us was a singer and sang. And another woman read some love poetry that had been written for the man who died by the wife. And I did the service. And we just encircled our woman friend with love and just beamed it on her through this service. And then we've been love beaming her ever since and letting her know how much we care about her and making sure that she has places to go on Saturday nights, et cetera. So women friends are also a survivor skill, but they're they're just a source of great joy and comfort. Most of the time, older women are taking care of other people, but our women friends take care of us. And that's just really beautiful. The other thing I think is very important is our need for meaning, I think, disappears when we take our last breath. And so I'm very much a proponent of being useful, being engaged with community work. I do environmental work here in my town, but any kind of work that helps the world or other people is not only good work and something satisfying in terms of our values, but it's also keeps us in contact with all ages of people and deeply connected and engaged with the world, which is essential to our own happiness. Yeah, and I've certainly seen that in the grandmother's campaign that I'm involved with where most of the grandmothers and grandothers, as they call themselves, didn't know each other before they came into these groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they say is that they never expected to develop new friendships at this stage in their life and that it's brought this incredible richness, exactly as you say, partly because they're engaged in social justice work and making the world a better place for their grandchildren to inherit, but also because it's enriched their own lives and their own connections with it. And they've built an entirely new community. And it's one of the things that I wanted to end with, because you do talk about activism and educating people around negative stereotypes and advocating for women of all ages. But I wanted to end with where you end in the book because I thought it was really beautiful and evocative and a powerful statement, the unique property that older women have that younger women, frankly, and women of my age cannot have. We just haven't lived long enough to arrive. And you you talk about the paradox of the Cape of Good Hope and the Cape of Storms. Oh, yeah, I remember that now. You know, I think that there's no way to live without hope. And the hopeful people are the ones that make it into their 70s and 80s and enjoy their 70s and 80s. And from my point of view, one of the great antidotes to despair is action. So that being engaged deeply with the world and making it a better place is one way to not despair. And there's, of course, many reasons to despair. We could argue that despair is the legitimate emotion for someone 71 years old looking at the world as we see it today. But I I do love that metaphor of the tip of South Africa is beautiful. I've been there. I worked in South Africa in Johannesburg and Cape Town at one point. And I was able to go to the tip of South Africa and see the Cape of Good Hope and the Cape of Storms. And I thought, what beautiful names, because they're both so true at this stage of life. We do see the loss and diminishment of people we love. We experience some diminishment of our own physical functioning in many cases. We say goodbye to some of the things we've loved doing all of our lives. I used to be a backpacker and hike 13, 14 miles up a mountain with a backpack on. I don't do that anymore. We say goodbye to some things we love. But on the other hand, we are so much more likely to be present for the moment and to find ourselves 
having moments of bliss and having epiphanies than we were when we were younger. For example, one of the things I have time to do is go out and lie down on the grass in the summer and watch the night sky. And I was too busy for years to do that. I was just always working and on the road and tired. But now I have plenty of time to do that or wake up in the morning and sit and have a cup of coffee and watch the sunrise for half an hour. And those experiences are so evocative of bliss. We can learn to orchestrate for ourselves these beautiful, lovely moments of understanding and connection and bliss. And that isn't discussed much, but it's an extraordinary important aspect of why older people are happier. And probably, by the way, the easiest, most common way older people feel bliss is when they're with a grandchild. That's a beautiful experience sometimes. Just a moment will happen that just knocks you down. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I remember watching my mother with my son in her garden. She's a great gardener and she has this most unusual and voluminous garden in Toronto in her backyard. And as I was reading your book, I understood something I've I've struggled to understand my entire life from childhood to adulthood, this intensity that my mother has for these moments in the garden where mm. she mm. almost communes with the flower. Right. She's not oh thinking. yeah, absolutely. I understand that totally. And my husband and I were just, I was working all weekend in Washington, D.C. this last weekend at the Psychotherapy Networker Conference. And my husband and I were taking a walk and admiring a few flowers have popped up in D.C. and we don't have any flowers here yet. So we're just drinking in the springtime in D.C. But every now and then we'd see a little bird and we both stop and say hello to birds and say a few words to them when we pass them by. We don't even think about it. We've been doing that now for several years of just stop and have a little conversation with the bird. And usually the bird will crook its head and look at us and it will seem like a little conversation. Well, that's something I would never have done when I was younger. But Mm -hmm. I I find myself doing things like that on a regular basis and just finding it deeply pleasant. That's right. I know when I saw my mom showing my son, he was quite young, those flowers and telling him the Latin names and Mm -hmm. letting him touch the petals. There was something you talked about giving Mm -hmm. grandchildren that slow time. And as I was reading it, I I had a complete epiphany that that was so precious and it was completely inaccessible to me in my 40s. And as I finished your book, I thought, wow, I really do feel jealous for the depth of insight and profundity and understanding of what really matters in life. I thought, well, there's something to look forward to as we age. That's right. That's absolutely right. And that joy, the the sense of authenticity and self-acceptance, that connection to all living beings and to deep time, I call it the Northern Lights. Those are the great rewards of this life stage. And I think that's a really good place to end because I, I want readers, I want listeners to understand that this life stage is not defined solely by diminishment, but also by great spiritual and emotional growth. Well, you gave, you certainly gave that to us in Women Rowing North. Mary, I cannot thank Thank you enough for it. And I hope that everyone sees out the book. And thank you for taking the time. It was wonderful to speak to you. Very much. I agree. Thank you so much. And I, I really congratulate you on the wonderful work you do. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.